Good morning from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv shortly after the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, authorized a special military operation in Ukraine's Donbass region and told the Ukrainian military to lay down their weapons and go home. In a special televised address on Russian state TV, Mr. Putin said Russia had been left with no choice but to defend itself against what he said were threats from Ukraine. This is what we all woke up to on February 23rd, 2022. I'm sure you remember where you were when you first heard about it. I remember where I was when I first heard about it. I got a phone call from my friend who's in the military, he's in the National Guard, calling me and both of us were completely freaking out that this was actually happening because up until that point, most of us didn't actually believe that it was going to happen because it was so outside of our paradigm. Because this was what would become the largest conventional military operation since the end of World War II. That was February 23rd. It is now, as I'm recording this, May 15th. It's been almost three months since the outbreak of the war, and a lot of things have changed since then. So... I started writing this podcast about a month ago, a little bit, little bit more than a month ago, and uh, I've been nervous to record it because there's so much ground to cover here, but we're going to do it, and we're going to do it because I believe that it's important for as many people as I can reach to understand the roots of this conflict because it's more complex than many of us may actually understand. There's a narrative going around right now that Vladimir Putin's a thug dictator. He's an awful leader, and he wants to tear the free world apart, and he's a power-hungry maniac, and he's a madman, and there's this narrative going around, and since the outbreak of the war, this narrative has been, you know, I see it on Twitter all over the place, I see it on news agencies all over the, all, all over the place, and to justify the largest conventional military operation since the end of World War II with, oh, he's a thug dictator, that didn't make sense to me. I thought there had to be more to this story than that. So I decided to get to work. And this is what I found. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I am Tanner, and as always, I will be talking about stuff that happened. It's a really pleasant return to the old way that I used to do things with the sound effects, with the prologues, with all that fun stuff, because we haven't done that in a really long time. Since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, we have not done really any prologues or any sound effects or anything of the sort. And so this is kind of a really fun return to form for me. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying it, because this is just great to get back to the basics. So, so but right before we start, I have been working on this particular episode for more than a month. And it's going to be a solid two days of recording and editing until I'm able to release it. I have been on my social media and told people, hey, it's coming out in the next few days. And I've had to push that back several times just because there's so much I've got to do with this episode. And uh, speaking of social media, you are welcome to now follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is t- at TannerTalks1, capital T's. And... Uh, Feel free to follow me on there if you want to stay updated with what I'm doing on the podcast. And there you can actually 
tweet at me directly. I'm not on it very much, I'll really just be on it to release episodes and to maybe get some traction and get some more people involved, but if you want to tweet at me, you're more than welcome to do that and I will try to listen and get back to you as soon as possible. So I look forward to seeing some of you on there. And also, as always, remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you are enjoying what you're hearing. It means a lot to me, and it will help get more people involved with the conversations about history. Now, without further ado, we are here to talk about one of the most complicated topics I've talked about to date. And the crazy thing is, it's going on right now. So... Without further ado, let's get started. A long time ago, over a thousand years ago to be exact, a single ethnic group existed to inhabit the area of Western Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, the Baltic States, and Finland. This area at the time was called the Kievan Rus, and it was a loosely tied federation of independent Eastern Slavic tribes that adopted similar languages and cultures. And this area existed from the 9th century AD to the 13th century AD. And while it endured a lot of political turmoil and the tribes occasionally fought one another for power, along with incursions by the Byzantine Empire, this federation continued to exist for over 400 years. And to put that into perspective, the United States of America is not even 250 years old yet. 400 years is a decent amount of time. During this time, this area was unified under a central Slavic identity. However, in the 1200s, the Mongols began their conquest of all of Russia and further into Eastern Europe, and in only five years, the Mongols sacked or completely destroyed most villages and population centers in the Kievan Rus. The Federation disintegrated. Now, the crazy thing about the Mongol Empire is that it rose from an idea to the largest t- contiguous empire in history in barely 50 years. We say Rome wasn't built in a day, but uh, the Mongol Empire was. And then, it collapsed in just as long. Think of the Mongol Empire like a tsunami. It wasn't there, then it was there, and it disrupted everything. And then just as quickly as it came, it was gone, leaving everything in disarray. And one of those things it left in disarray was the Kievan Rus. In the East, a group of Eastern Slavs calling themselves the Muscovites began uniting territories under the Muscovian banner. Further west, the Kingdom of Galicia-Volinia annexed much of what is now western Ukraine. Between the two, territory was grabbed up by the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which occupied a large strip of land stretching from modern-day Lithuania on the Baltic Sea all the way down to the Black Sea, where the modern-day port city of Odessa sits. That's in Ukraine. At this point, these three kingdoms began developing new, distinct identities that aligned with the geopolitics that now governed their homelands. In the late 1400s, the Muscovites reorganized their territories into the first formal Russian state, and from there, 
the rivalries blossomed. The new Russian Empire had some territorial disputes with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and as the Russian state expanded its borders, the Poles got more and more uneasy with the expansion, and in 1608, the first war between Russia and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth broke out over territories, over border territories between the two. One of those territories included the growing city of Kiev. Ultimately, the Commonwealth would best the Russians in this war and humiliate them, taking Kiev for themselves. Now, this is the first time that Kiev, the city of Kiev, was overtaken by a different entity. So, the people who lived in Kiev, their lives didn't change a whole lot, but suddenly they were no longer governed over the Russians, they were now governed over the Polish-Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth, and they didn't really have any say in that. It's important to remember that that happened here for the first time. Now, unfortunately for the Poles, their ambition was too great, and in the next half century, a number of wars would weaken their hold on Eastern Europe. Despite their territorial gains in their war with Russia, many of the Eastern Slavs still identified more with Russia than they did with Poland, and this specific ethnic group of Slavs became known as Cossacks. They didn't feel a sense of loyalty to the Polish, but they felt they owed more of their roots to the new Russian Tsardom. For 10 years in the mid-1600s, they staged a large uprising against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, beseeching the Tsar in Russia for assistance, which was granted in the form of an annexation, and the territory of modern-day Ukraine was incorporated into the new Russian Empire, won by the blood of the Cossacks. It's important to look at this in creating the Ukrainian national identity. The Cossacks won their freedom from Poland on their own, and drove the Poles out of their freshly Russian land by particularly violent means, establishing a new society there that was strictly Cossack. But though it wasn't Polish anymore, it wasn't exactly Russian either. It was something different, something new. The culture of this new territory was unique to it. The new territory was called several different things. It was called the Zaporizhian host by the Cossacks who lived there, Cossack Hetmanit by historians, but something else by forces such as the Ottomans, the Arabs, and the Polish. In documents put down by these different groups of people, the name given to this territory was Ukraine, which translates literally to the borderlands, which is why people often refer to the country as the Ukraine. Through the 1600s, the Russian Empire gradually annexed all of this new territory and formalized it as part of Russia. However, the authoritarian powers that be inside Russia didn't like the idea of ethnic Cossacks, with their new nationalistic ideals, being so concentrated there. Because of this, they forcibly relocated these Cossacks across Russia and spread them out so that any idea of an independent Cossack nation would die quietly. And it did. As the Russian Empire expanded in the 1700s and 1800s, the new territory called Ukraine became more and more vital to the Russian Empire as a source of food and a gateway to Central Europe, and Russia needed to tighten its grip on the area which was now being commonly referred to as Ukraine. 
1804, Russia banned the Ukrainian language from being taught in schools in the region. In the 1840s, Nicholas I abolished all self-governance in Ukraine and brought it all firmly under Russian control. Ukrainian Uniate churches were forcibly converted to Russian Orthodox churches. The Russian government even mandated historical textbooks in schools that offered a revised history of the Russian annexation of Ukraine that made Russia look more favorable. In short, the Russian Empire russified Ukraine. Now, don't get me wrong, for most of the 1800s, the vast majority of Ukrainians were totally cool with this. The territory of Ukraine did not have the means to self-govern, and the interaction between it and the rest of the Russian Empire kept its feeble economy afloat. By itself, it would not survive. But despite the vast majority of Ukrainians being cool with Russia, there still existed a tiny minority of Ukrainian nationalists who dreamed of an independent Ukraine. So when World War I broke out in 1914, these Ukrainian nationalists believed their time had come. In 1917, the Russian government collapsed entirely, with several factions vying for control, chiefly the Bolsheviks, a communist front with radical new ideas. Russia exited World War I and attempted to focus on internal affairs, which were quickly devolving into a bloody civil war. To add to this, Austria-Hungary, which had controlled parts of western Ukraine, disintegrated at the end of the war, and many Ukrainian nationalists saw this as a golden opportunity to start anew and unite Ukraine under a single banner. Unfortunately, many of these Ukrainian nationalists had different ideas of how this should be conducted. The first government to take control of Ukraine began their affairs in 1917, establishing a distinct Ukrainian state but still considering themselves part of the Russian Empire. When the Bolsheviks formally took over Russia and reorganized it into the Soviet Union, however, it was met with staunch opposition from the Ukrainian nationalists, and Ukraine declared itself independent from the Soviets, alongside Poland and the Baltic states. The Soviets did not take kindly to this, and they invaded Ukraine, along with all other nations who opposed. Unfortunately for Ukraine, the Soviets would eventually triumph and establish the Third Soviet Republic of Ukraine, incorporating Ukraine into the Soviet Union in 1920, where it would remain until 1991. While Ukrainian nationalism continued, once the Soviet Union took control, the vast majority of it went underground for survival. In the later 1920s, Joseph Stalin, constantly paranoid of the threat of dissent in the various Soviet republics, caught wind of a number of Ukrainian nationalists still living in Ukraine. He turned his brand new secret police organization, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, which was a precursor to the KGB, on Ukraine. So here's the thing. The vast majority of documents related to what happened in the next 10 years in Ukraine are spotty at best. And the documents we have are probably heavily redacted for public consumption. So here's what we do know. Bullet point number one. Stanislaw Kozier, the first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine, said in 1933, quote, Ukrainian nationalism is our chief danger. Next bullet point. Between 1932 and 1933, grain production in Ukraine was cut virtually in half. Bullet point number three. 
3.5 to 5 million Ukrainians died of starvation out of a population of 32 million between 1932 and 1933. That's more than 1 in 10 Ukrainians starving to death in just more than a single year. Bullet point number four. Encyclopedia Britannia states repeatedly that there were no drastic physical causes for famine in Ukraine at that time. Bullet point number five. The Soviet Union experienced an unusually productive harvest in 1930 and increased their quotas for grain and expectations for similar harvests in the future, planning to export the excess grain for profit. Bullet point number six. Seven laws were implemented in the Soviet Ukraine in 1932, but curiously, only in Soviet Ukraine. Not the other Soviet states. Only Ukraine. Law number one. From 18th of November 1932, peasants of Ukraine are required to return extra grain they have previously earned for meeting their targets. State police and party brigades are sent into these regions to root out any food they can find. Law number two. A law is passed two days after the first law, forcing peasants who could not meet their grain quotas to surrender any livestock they had. Law number three. Eight days later, collective farms that failed to meet their quotas are placed on blacklists in which they are forced to surrender 15 times their quota. These farms are picked apart for any possible food by party activists. Blacklisted communes had no right to trade or receive deliveries of any kind and became death zones. Law number four. On the 5th of December 1932, Stalin's security chief presents justification for terrorizing Ukrainian party officials to collect the grain. It was considered treason if anyone refused to do their part in grain requisitions for the state. Law number five. In November 1932, Ukraine is required to provide one-third of the grain collection of the entire Soviet Union. As Lazar Kaganovich put it, the Soviet state will fight ferociously to fulfill that plan. Law number six. In January 1933, Ukraine's borders are sealed in order to prevent Ukrainian peasants from fleeing to other republics. By the end of February 1933, approximately 190,000 Ukrainian peasants had been caught trying to flee Ukraine and were forced to return to their villages to starve. Law number seven. The collection of grain continued even after the annual requisition target for 1932 was met in late January 1933. All of these laws are factual and corroborated by several prestigious historians. Now, it's time to speculate a bit further with evidence to back up our speculation. What happened here? Raphael Lemkin was a Polish lawyer who famously coined the term genocide and participated in the International Convention for the Punishment and Prevention of Genocide. In 1953, he proposed that the policies enacted by Stalin in the 1930s on Ukraine were part of a larger and more far-reaching plan to pacify Ukraine and put it firmly under his boot. 
Lemkin suggested that Stalin's plan to subjugate Ukraine had four prongs. First, decimate the Ukrainian elites. This was done during the war with Ukraine when the Bolsheviks took the city. They massacred many Ukrainian elites. Second, destroy the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. This was a content continuation of the efforts undertaken in the 1800s, but instead of replacing the churches, Stalin instituted state-sponsored atheism. All religions soon became outlawed. Third, starve the Ukrainian population. This happened during 1932 and 1933 to a horrific extent. Fourth, move ethnic non-Ukrainians from other Soviet republics into Ukraine. It's important to understand that the killing of Ukrainians was not Stalin's endgame. His endgame was to destroy the strength of the Ukrainian ethnicity and replace it with purely Russian ethnicity. In his mind, destroying an ethnic Ukraine would destroy all Ukrainian nationalism. Many historians consider these events a genocide against the Ukrainians, while others consider Stalin's acts criminal but not quite genocidal. Whatever you view, the fact is that Ukraine lost over 10% of its population due to starvation in a year when the Soviet Union was at peace, while there were no drastic external factors in play. Whatever the ultimate reasoning behind the famine in Ukraine between 1932 and 1933, it was effective in stomping out the majority of Ukrainian nationalism. The people living in the territory were psychologically crippled by the mass death, and it left little room for any of these silly nationalist ideas. At the outbreak of World War II, the few Ukrainian nationalists left took up arms against the Soviets first, fighting alongside the Nazis when they invaded, and then fighting the Nazis once they'd taken the territory, in an effort once more to create an independent Ukraine. During this time, a number of Ukrainian soldiers joined the Nazis in perpetrating ethnic cleansing in Poland, murdering at least 60,000 and as many as 200,000 Poles in 1943 alone. While the Nazis initially, initially supported these ideas during their massive invasion of the Soviet Union and enjoyed the extra support for their forces fighting the Soviets, when they caught wind of the Ukrainians' plans to create an independent Ukraine, they withdrew their support and began a brutal suppression cam campaign during the occupation. When the Nazis were forced out by the Soviets during the relentless Soviet counterattack, any Ukrainians who fought alongside the Nazis were rooted out and imprisoned or, more likely, executed. First, the Nazis suppressed Ukrainian nationalism, and after, the Soviets mopped up the remains. By the end of the war and the fall of the Iron Curtain, Ukrainian nationalism was snuffed out. For the next 50 years, any embers that began to glow were quickly doused by the Soviet government. Fifty years later... As the Soviet Union teetered on the brink of complete collapse, Ukrainian nationalism experienced a resurgence, and after an attempted coup of the Soviet Prime Minister Mikhail Gorbachev, many Ukrainians saw that it was a, as good time as ever to make their move. In a referendum by the Ukrainian state government, 92% of voters cast their ballots in favor of Ukrainian independence. On the 24th of August, 1991, the Ukrainian government declared their independence from the Soviet Union. The Soviets merely added this to the laundry list of other independence declarations and knew that they didn't have the manpower to fight it. Three months later, the Soviet Union dissolved entirely.
After more than 1,000 years, the world beheld a Ukrainian nation for the first time. The Ukrainian people rejoiced. It was the beginning of a new era in Eastern Europe, centered on free market capitalism, the abolishment of mass surveillance and government overreach, and democracy. On August 25, 1991, the sun rose for the first time over a free Ukraine. There's a lot of flowery talk here about a free Ukraine and all that jazz, but let's shift our focus just a bit further east to what was now called the Russian Federation, where a young new politician was making waves as the Russian Federation went through its emo phase. Let's get one thing straight. The fall of the Soviet Union and the birth of the Russian Federation didn't mean everything in Russia automatically got better. Distrustful of the old Soviet ministers, the Russian people elected many officials into government who did not hold a lot of sway over the people, and many Russians did not hold a lot of faith in the ability of the government to regulate affairs in the new state. As a result, many Russians came under the protection, or regulation, of the Russian Mafia. It's been a little while since we've had a definition. Today, we're going to talk about the Mafia. But if we're going to be defining something like this in, in the future, I thought maybe we should have some intellectual mood music to set the mood. Ah yes, the Four Seasons. Thank you, Vivaldi. Now, the term Mafia is known in many circles, particularly surrounding infamous stories like The Godfather, The Irishman, and Goodfellas. But the true story of the Mafia is a fascinating tale of cultural diffusion and even the creation of a mob diaspora. A Mafia is an organized international body of criminals, operating originally in Sicily and now especially in Italy and the US, and having a complex and ruthless behavioral code. Other definitions include any specialized organization who uses extortion and other criminal methods to achieve an end goal, or even any closed group in a particular field who have a controlling influence in that field. In this context, the Russian Mafia became a powerful player in the Russian Federation immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union. In the 1980s, Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev loosened a lot of restrictions on private businesses and a number of ambitious players quickly began establishing footholds on numerous enterprises. As the Union collapsed, the Soviet law enforcement collapsed with it, and those powerful players became well known in the world of business, and many Russians knew their names. The Soviets, with their economy in dire straits, called their troops hardened from battle back from Afghanistan, discharging them all and then disbanding the KGB, the infamous Soviet secret police, leaving all of these soldiers and agents jobless. So mix a new fledgling state, powerless politicians, a bunch of ruthless but jobless agents and soldiers, and a brand new largely unregulated capitalist economic system and what do you get? The infamous Russian Mafia. From 1991 to around 2000, the Russian Mafia held sway in all major operations in Russia. From national exports, to the weapons trade, to the arts, to train schedules, the Mafia had grunts everywhere and Russian citizens were subjected to the whims and the wraths of Mafia members. Russia was essentially run this way. The Mafia ran everything for almost 10 years. It was just how things went. 
But the Mafia wasn't Russia's only problem. A number of independence movements had sprung up across the nation, and various other former Soviet states had descended into civil war, beseeching the Russian Federation for assistance. Insurgencies erupted in Georgia, Azerbaijan, Tajikistan, Latvia, Lithuania, Abkhazia, Dagestan, and most prominently, Chechnya. These numerous wars sapped the new Russian Federation's meager funds as they feverishly attempted to create a sphere of influence, and in the midst of it all, the Russian constitution created a crisis when opposition parties drafted a new constitution to challenge it, nearly, de nearly leading to the outbreak of a second Russian civil war. To put it simply, Russia was having a very bad time. And there were points in the 1990s when many international players wondered if Russia would cease to exist. Enter this young, charismatic politician named Vladimir Putin. Putin had worked extensively in the former Soviet Union and served in the KGB, remember, the Soviet secret police, for 16 years. He came from an aristocratic family and had connections in the Kremlin. His grandfather had been the personal cook for Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, and his father had served in the Soviet secret police during World War II. He had lost most of his family to the German invasion and became fiercely nationalistic as a result. Putin lived a simple life as a child, attending school in St. Petersburg and learning German, which he now speaks as a second language. He attended college in what is now St. Petersburg University and studied law, meeting several influential Soviet thinkers in his time there, who would eventually help him climb the political ladder. After graduating with a degree in law, Putin joined the KGB at the age of 23, where he would remain for 16 years. After he finished his training, details of the first eight years of his time in the KGB are murky at best. Many reports state that he was seen in New Zealand posing as a shoe salesman to collect information, and even the mayor of a town in northwestern New Zealand and one of the former prime ministers of the nation have both stated that they either saw or spoke with Putin in New Zealand between 1975 and 1984. In 1985, he was sent to Dresden in East Germany, where he continued to monitor Western influence in the area until 1990, shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He resigned from the KGB in 1990 and began dabbling in politics. The Soviet Union was barely holding it together in 1990, and Putin probably saw the writing on the wall. If he wanted to make real waves in the nation, now was the time to act. He was appointed as an advisor on international affairs to the mayor of Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, in 1990, and in 1991 he was appointed as the head of the Committee for External Affairs for the same mayor. In this office, he oversaw many business ventures and export prices in and out of St. Petersburg. In 1994, he was appointed as the first deputy chairman of the city, and in 1995, he organized a branch of the Our Home Russia political party in St. Petersburg, which was a liberal political party advocating for personal freedoms, which was still a revolutionary concept in post-Soviet Russia. He managed the legislative campaigns of the branch in 1995, and was the leader of the branch from 1995 to 1997. It's curious that Putin was part of this party because the party was very much pro-freedom, at least in a Russian capacity. Putin is often called an authoritarian leader, and there's a lot of evidence to support that. So why did he join this party? Did he believe in the message, or was this a means to an ultimate end? I don't know the answer, so I won't say one way or the other. 
1996, the mayor Putin had fallen into such favor with failed to get re-elected, leaving Putin without someone to assist in his continued rise up the political ladder. So Putin left St. Petersburg and traveled to Moscow, where he used his influence to thread his way into the politics of the Russian capital. There, he was quickly appointed as deputy chief of the presidential property management department. What does that mean? I literally have no clue, but it sounds official. I think it has something to do with transferring assets owned by the state during the Soviet Union to the private sector for development. Profoundly interesting work, I'm sure. But in 1997, Putin finally got his big break. Prime Minister Boris Yeltsin noticed Putin's drive and his desire to succeed as well as his passion for the nation and appointed him as deputy chief of the presidential staff, which meant he was directly in contact with every leading player of the Russian executive branch. Two years later, as Boris Yeltsin's time as president of Russia came to an end, Putin announced his bid to run for prime minister, which he won, becoming the fifth prime minister of Russia in 18 months. At those odds, any historian can see that Putin was inheriting a mess of a nation. When Boris Yeltsin retired, Putin inherited his office as president and put his target on the Russian mafia. Remember, this wasn't a gang that terrorized locals in a city or two. It wasn't even a powerful gang that ran a couple businesses. This was a nationwide organization that had underlings in every major corporation and system of government in the nation. The mafia was embedded in the fabric of Russian society at every juncture. Rooting it out would not be as simple as one big sting operation. But Putin took them on. In the first 12 years of his tenure, crime committed by large organizations had been cut by two-thirds as Putin rebuilt his police force and sent his goons into the Russian underworld, gaining significant favor from the Russian populace. In another show of his defense of the people, Putin literally banished a number of Russian oligarchs from the nation. Time for another definition. Vivaldi? If you've been following this whole Russia-Ukraine situation, you've probably heard the term oligarch before, but what does that mean? In simple terms, an oligarch is a very wealthy business leader who holds a great deal of political influence. For instance, a wealthy businessman or woman has a lot of expendable income and can donate large sums of money to certain political campaigns in return for promises that those politicians will enact new laws or tax exemptions that are favorable to the corporation that man or woman runs. It's fairly common, unfortunately. In the United States, we have oligarchs also, such as Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and the Rockefeller family. So, Putin did away with a bunch of oligarchs who had risen to prominence in the 1990s and did it rather publicly to cheers from his people. While this would gain their trust, Putin actually then replaced a number of these oligarchs with other wealthy Russians who supported his ideals, so nothing really changed there. Putin also deregulated much of the Russian economy in a way that provided incentives for Russian people to start small businesses. He introduced a flat tax rate of 13% nationwide and lowered the corporate income tax from 35% to 24%. Russians were being taxed less than anywhere else in Europe. In his first term, Industry grew by 76%, investments increased 125%, the average monthly Russian salary increased by 700%, and the middle class grew from 8 million in 1999 to $55 million in 2007. To top it all off, Putin made a huge push to exploit Russia's enormous oil and natural gas reserves, putting Russia on track to become one of the most wealthy nations on Earth. 
In terms of society, Putin put into place some interesting educational options for parents to send their children to. Chief among these was the option to have your child taught religion in schools. And it wasn't only one option. Putin recognized Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, and Orthodox Christianity as ancestrally important to Russia's culture, and gave parents the option to have their children taught the central tenets of one of these religions in schools or have the option to have their children taught none of them. In terms of military service, Putin reformed the military drastically. Before his time in office, draftees were forced to serve two full years in the military. Putin changed this to one. After that, he closed nearly all of the 27,000 private towns that house soldiers, relocating those soldiers to other urban areas to integrate them with civil civilian society. He reduced the size of the military significantly, letting the former soldiers return home to find other jobs to assist the booming economy and rap rapidly industrializing society. He also got tough on harassment and hazing in the military, with all of these things winning the respect of his soldiers. Overall, Putin was quickly swaying the hearts and minds of the Russian people in the societal and economic sector, but he had yet to show his prowess in another field. War. Let's jump over to a few little territories in southwestern Russia that are predominantly Muslim. Dagestan, Ingushetia, and Chechnya. This area is known as the North Caucasus, and is the area directly north of modern-day nations of Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. The North Caucasus is primarily the isthmus between Northeast Turkey and the rest of mainland Russia. I really just wanted an opportunity to use the word isthmus. That might have been a first for me. But these nations were hit hard by the Great Russian Identity Crisis of the 1990s. Unlike the rest of Russia, this area had been the subject of hundreds of Muslim missionaries from the Ottoman Empire in the 1700s, and much of the population had converted. The population developed deep Islamic roots, which remain to this day. This is in stark contrast to the rest of Russia, the majority of which is either devoutly Orthodox Christian or stoutly atheist. The North Caucasus has a long history of resistance to Russian rule, dating back to the 1700s when the Russian Empire originally asserted its dominance over the region. They continued to resist the Soviet Union through the entire Soviet era, and when the Union disintegrated, the various Soviet states began signing into the, into the new Russian Federation. However, when the papers reached the small region of Chechnya to become part of the Federation, the Chechen government literally just didn't sign the papers. In fact, they didn't say anything to the Russians. So, hypothetically, Chechnya by default was independent. And as a brand new nation trying to assert its territorial dominance, Russia could have absolutely none of that. Hearing reports of ethnic cleansing of non-Chechens inside Chechnya and other concerning news on top of a Russian territory declaring independence, the Russian Federation put boots on the ground in December of 1994, instigating a brutal war inside Chechnya. And to make a long story short, Russia bombed Chechnya into oblivion. In a three-month battle, Russian soldiers swarmed the Chechnyan capital of Grozny and reduced the city to rubble in the largest bombing campaign since World War II. Unfortunately for the Russians, the bombing campaign only strengthened the resolve of the Chechen people, and Russian losses were catastrophic, breaking the back of the Russian attack force and shattering their morale. As images began circulating of the destruction of Grozny, and the civilian casualties climbed into the tens of thousands, the international community decried the Russian invasion and called for their immediate exit from Chechnya. 
Even former Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev called it a disgraceful, bloody adventure. Despite the calls for a ceasefire, the Russian advance continued and Grozny fell in the March of 1995. The Russians then moved into the countryside where Chechens waged a fierce guerrilla war against them for the next year. Russian losses mounted and international condemnation grew and eventually Russian president Boris Yeltsin could no longer justify the cost of the war. And in August of 1996, he pulled the beleaguered Russian soldiers out of Chechnya and signed a peace treaty with the Chechens, recognizing their de facto independence. Despite their new nation being completely destroyed, the Chechens rejoiced. Russia was humiliated by the ordeal. The largest nation in the world losing a war to a tiny speck of land in the North Caucasus, and the same nation that was supposedly so scary for 40 years after World War II. Boris Yeltsin retreated into his office with his tail between his legs. His proud nation was a laughingstock. So... In 1999, when Putin needed a way to prove his military leadership, he fixed his gaze back on Chechnya, which was rapidly destabilizing. Because after the Russians backed out of Chechnya in 96, the nation was left in tatters. I can't really express through words how devastated the capital of Grozny was by the Russian bombing campaign. You'll have to look it up for yourself. But the civilian population was impoverished and distrusting and had little faith in the Chechen leadership. Radical groups dotted the land, the most radical of these being a radical Muslim group who desired the creation of an Islamic state and the enaction of Sharia law in Chechnya. They also sought the unification between Chechnya and the neighboring state of Dagestan, another largely Muslim territory that was still part of the Russian Federation. Uniting the two majority Muslim territories would create a nation almost the size of Georgia to their west. In 1998, Chechnya was on the brink of civil war, with the various Islamist groups openly clashing with the National Guard in Chechnya. When this fighting broke out, the largest of these radical Islamic groups, called the Mujahideen, made their move. What is the Mujahideen? This is a broad question, because the Mujahideen is more of an ideology than a centralized movement. Referring to someone as a Mujahideen, if traced back far enough, colloquially, is denoting that this person is participating in Islamic Jihad. Oh, jeez. Um, okay. Jihad in Arabic literally means struggle, but is more commonly used as a way to define someone embarking on a holy war against their religious enemies. In the modern world, this is most commonly in groups who are attempting to establish the Islamic State, such as the Taliban, ISIS, ISIL, and Al-Qaeda. Okay, the, uh, Mujahideen. So, like I said, someone who falls under the umbrella of Mujahideen is someone who is participating in Islamic Jihad. The important thing to note in this particular situation is that many militant Islamic groups in the Middle East have incorporated the term Mujahideen into their official titles or even referred to their organizations as the, quote, Mujahideen in, insert country, name here. In Chechnya, they were simply called the Mujahideen in Chechnya. It was simpler this way for these groups to have an international draw for other radical Islamists to join their cause. Two leaders among the Mujahideen, living in territories of Dagestan and Chechnya, were Shamil Basayev, a Chechen separatist, and Emir Khatab, a Saudi-born Islamist. They worked in the underground of the separatist movements in Dagestan and Chechnya, and decided that with the area fast approaching civil war, it was time for them to act and they formed a group of around 2,000 Mujahideen soldiers from Chechnya and Dagestan, as well as other international troops who massed in the south of Chechnya. 
On August 7, 1999, the Mujahideen force crossed the border into Dagestan and started taking villages by force, soon after declaring the Islamic State of Dagestan independent from Russia, and they declared war on the current territorial government. They were hoping for a popular uprising against what they referred to as, quote, the yoke of Russian colonialism. Essentially, they just declared war on the entire Russian Federation, which is a ballsy, if not asinine, move. As such, Putin responded in kind. The invaders were not welcomed as the liberators they saw themselves as, but rather as religious fanatics disturbing the peace. During the days while the Dagestani people were waiting for Russian federal troops to arrive to push the invaders out, police and local militias banded together to stave them off resulting in intense border clashes as locals fortified their towns. It bought the Russian military enough time to set up artillery positions and target airstrikes, which decimated the invading force. The Mujahideen attempted to open a second front further north in Dagestan, but it was also quickly routed, with both prongs retreating into Chechnya. The invasion lasted little more than a month, and by mid-September, all Dagestani towns captured by the militants had been retaken by Dagestani police and civilians and Russian forces. But Putin saw an opportunity here. He hadn't been in office very long, but he'd watched his, the catastrophe that was the war in Chechnya carried out by his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin. The drama of the conflict had been a stain on Russia's national prestige, and the barbaric tactics undertaken by the Russian military had turned international public opinion against them. Putin was winning in Russia, but he had one more big win to grab. The Chechen government had been a thorn in Russia's side since the end of the war back in 1996. In 1999, several assassination attempts were carried out on the Chechen president, and he'd blamed them on Russia. The same year, the Russian envoy to Chechnya was abducted and later found dead in Chechnya. Through the year, sporadic border clashes took place between Russian troops and Chechen militants. Immediately after Russia declared victory in Dagestan, the territory was terrorized by two weeks of large apartment bombings, which ultimately killed over 300 people and injured more than a thousand others. Russia blamed the attacks on the Chechens, and while there are many theories that these were false flag attacks to justify an invasion, there is also a lot of evidence that the blame was reasonably placed on the Chechen rebels who invaded Dagestan. All the while, anti-Russian sentiment had been high among Chechen officials and reports had been coming from inside Chechnya for years that ethnic Russians were being persecuted and killed. As early as late August, while the war in Dagestan was, was still ongoing, Russian fighter jets were bombing militant positions in Chechnya. By late September, Russian warplanes were once again flying over Grozny. On October 1st, Russian troops invaded Chechnya on all sides, and a brutal advance began through the country. Putin's tactics were sweeping and destructive. The capital of Grozny, just starting to be rebuilt, was once again reduced to rubble. If you thought the bombing campaign was bad in 96, check out 2000. Wild stuff. But Putin took a different approach to this war than Yeltsin had. Instead of outright declaring a state of war with Chechnya, Putin insisted through the entire conflict that his goal here was to rid Chechnya of those pesky rebels. After a fierce battle for Grozny lasting just over a month, Putin adopted a decidedly different tactic than his predecessor in establishing peace in Chechnya. The war was over, easily. Anyone could see that. Putin had asserted his dominance over Chechnya quickly and effectively. However, he did not demand surrender. 
Instead, he organized a Chechen-run government and re-established the Chechen Republic, this time declaring it part of the Russian Federation, but with special privileges as a state. Here's where it's important to follow Putin's strategy in his war with Ukraine, 23 years after his invasion of Chechnya. Putin didn't throw one of his henchmen in to rule Chechnya. Instead, he grabbed someone who had actually fought Russia in the First and Second Chechen Wars, and was a leader in both to run the Chechen administration. This guy's name was Ahmad Kadyrov, a Muslim Chechen nationalist. Putin didn't subjugate Chechnya, he negotiated with them. He learned what they desired and met them halfway on many of their terms, as long as they remained in the Russian Federation. In return, the new Chechen government formed a military force full of specialized fighters with the sole purpose of rooting out Chechen rebels who were still hiding out in the mountains. So Putin got the win that was winning the war, solidifying his hold as ruler, and the Chechens got a large measure of autonomy. Everyone compromised and everyone won. Putin even went back and rebuilt a large part of Grozny after the territory was reintegrated into Russia. And despite a low-level insurgency that the Chechen military dealt with for several years afterward, the war with Russia was over relatively quickly, and Putin was on top. In the 2004 Russian presidential election, he won 71% of the votes, a landslide win. In his next mandate, his primary goals were improving Russia's healthcare system, housing, education, and agriculture, which he addressed with a sweeping plan called the National Priority Projects. Quickly, wages in all areas grew significantly, and the sector showed signs of rapid modernization. His favor among the Russian people was unparalleled, but by the time his second term came around, it was time for him to leave office. At least, that was what the Russian constitution said. So Putin got clever. In a power-switching operation, he relinquished control of the Russian presidency with Dmitry Medvedev being elected and adopted the position of prime minister instead. Wait, what? Okay, so this took me until I was around 20 to finally understand, because in the United States, our executive branch is mostly just the president and their cabinet. In many other nations, however, there is a president and a prime minister, and each has distinct operations to conduct in the executive branch of government. Russia is a semi-presidential government, and the prime minister assists the president in making national decisions. The big thing to note here is that the president is elected by the people, while the prime minister is appointed by the government. And they're both technically heads of state. So Putin was no longer president, but by some clever political maneuvering, he remained a head of state and had drastic influence over the politics of the nation where he tried his hand at another war Russia found itself involved in, come 2008, shortly after the election. The nation of Georgia, to the southwest of Russia and formerly part of the Soviet Union, right next to Chechnya, had been having internal issues since the dissolution of the USSR. Many ethnic groups considered various territories to be independent from Georgia, chief among these being South Ossetia and Abkhazia, tiny areas in the north and northwest of Georgia. During his time as president, Putin had been very interested in these ethnic conflicts as Georgia offered him a buffer state to the Middle East, something valuable in case tensions rose anywhere. Abkhazia was also on the coast of the Black Sea and held a number of valuable ports. In the first eight years of his presidency, Putin had supported the independence movements of these two states and even offered Russian passports to their inhabitants. Putin sent Russian citizens to run the South Ossetian territorial government and flooded the tiny area with Russian money. 
In March of 2008, Abkhazia and South Ossetia submitted a formal request to Russia to recognize them as part of the Russian Federation. Enter the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. If you've been following the Ukraine conflict literally at all, you have heard this name. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO, the big dog of the West. At the end of World War II, the United States, France, and Britain were not friendly to the Soviet Union and the rest of the Eastern Bloc, and the Soviets weren't super happy with the West either. Due to ideological differences and fundamental distrust in the maintaining of the new post-war borders, the authoritarian Communist East and the democratic capitalist West were in stark division. Leaders on both sides were afraid that it was going to eventually lead to another war. Barely 20 years had passed since the end of World War I and the outbreak of World War II. Was World War III going to show up fresh into the 60s? There had to be some way to buffer this. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was born. In 1949, 11 nations, France, Belgium, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Portugal, Canada, Norway, the United States, Denmark, and Iceland, created the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Over the next few decades, the organization would continue to add members, eventually amassing 30 member nations, with three more currently under consideration, and two reportedly preparing to submit proposals. The deal was this. Someone declares war on one member of NATO, every other member of NATO would immediately join in the fight against whatever nation opened hostilities. This made it extremely dangerous for the Soviet Union to attempt invasion on any NATO territory, and was the inspiration for the creation of the Warsaw Pact. But that's a conversation for another time. Even though the Soviet Union was history, Putin and his cabinet were still skeptical of the potential anti-Russian aims of NATO, primarily because NATO had been created to counteract the Soviets, and now that the Soviet Union didn't exist, NATO still seemed to be alive and kicking. In 2008, the nation of Georgia elected a pro-Western president, and one of his first orders of business was to submit a formal request to join NATO to protect against further Russian expansion, because, remember, Russia was expanding into the two territories that had declared independence from Georgia. U.S. President George W. Bush started taking steps to make the admission of Georgia into NATO a reality, and by August, the pieces were in place. And then, on August 7th, Russian troops passed into Georgian territory amid fierce border clashes between Abkhaz and South Ossetian separatists in the and the Georgian military. It was war. But this war was decidedly different from the Russian invasions of Chechnya. The stark contrast here is that there were no huge bombing campaigns of Georgia, and there were not widespread invasions of the entire territory. Instead, Russia acted with surgical precision, invading only small areas of land and targeting specific Georgian positions with the intentions of disabling their defenses. A single column of Russian soldiers incurred into central Georgia and captured the strategically important city of Gori, and the Russian navy blockaded the crucial seaport city of Poti on the Black Sea. Then, Russia allowed for the separatists and the Georgians to battle it out as they held their positions for a few weeks before an organized withdrawal took place out of the country altogether. Fighting between separatists and Georgians continued for a few days before they settled into a stalemate and the shooting stopped. The war was over with only a few hundred dead and a few hundred wounded. Russia kept troops in Abkhazia and South Ossetia and recognized their independence, but did not commit any more acts of aggression against Georgia. Georgia, in return, has never attempted to join NATO again. So what changed? 
Putin saw the damage Russia did to Chechnya during their two wars there, and instead of subjugating them, he had learned to coexist with them by agreeing to compromise. They kept a lot of autonomy and got to have a loyal Chechen leader, but remained part of Russia. When Russia invaded Georgia, Putin approached it with a clear goal in mind. Help Abkhazia and South Ossetia get independence and send a message to Georgia that the wor and the world that Russia means business. He accomplished both of these tasks quickly and precisely. Further destruction was not warranted. Sure, the separatists and the Georgians started having at each other in real nasty ways, but that was none of Russia's business. It had achieved its goals. When considering Putin's attack on Ukraine, let's keep this whole Georgia situation in mind. After Russian troops pulled out of Georgia, Russia drafted a new doctrine that is actually pivotal in understanding the war in Ukraine, and it's called the Medvedev Doctrine. In 2008, Dmitry Medvedev was the sitting president of Russia, but he was, in essence, Putin's puppet as Putin had instituted himself as prime minister, remember? In an interview with a Russian television station immediately following the war, Medvedev outlined a series of points. The most important point here is this, quote, protecting the lives and dignity of our citizens wherever they may be is an unquestionable priority for our country, close quote. What does that mean exactly? What was Medvedev denoting? Basically, the fall of the Soviet Union was a bit more messy than just a simple reorganization of Russia. Revolutions all over the former nation created more than a dozen independent countries, but there were still people in those countries who identified more with Russia and held more Russian ancestry. Remember, because Russia would send Russian people all over to all these different territories to Russify them like they did in Ukraine. So they were holding more Russian ancestry than they did with their new governments and new nationalities, specifically nations on the border of the Russian Federation. And one of these nations was the nation of Ukraine. We're here, folks. We made it to Ukraine, but not quite to the war yet. There's still some stuff to cover here. We made it to 2009. The war in Georgia is over, but Eastern Europe is on edge still because when Georgia had asked to be part of NATO, Ukraine had taken advantage of the sudden geopolitical tension to slip a note to NATO countries saying it was kind of interested too. Ukraine was becoming more and more westernized in the two decades after the fall of the Soviet Union, and its citizens wanted more economic ties with the West to support their rapidly developing economy. However, when Russian troops were suddenly on the ground in Georgia, Ukrainian officials realized that it probably wasn't the best time to make a move, so they waited. They waited until 2012. After three years, the dust had settled, and they began talks with the West again, but this time, instead of NATO, they were entering economic discussions with the European Union, which is something kind of like the economic equivalent of NATO, but only in Europe. Ukrainian officials wanted to enter what was called an association agreement with the European Union, which would open their nation's borders to many goods from Western Europe and make it easier for Ukrainian businesses to get their products sold further west. Many Ukrainians had been gunning for this for a long time and were excited that it was finally happening, but Russia had a different sentiment. Still skeptical of the West, Russian diplomats spoke openly against Ukraine's agreements with the European Union. Ukraine called Russia out for it, furthered the agreement, and in response, in 2013, Russia stopped the imports of all Ukrainian goods into Russia, hurting eastern Ukraine's economy deeply. It was the beginning of a trade war. But before we get further, 
let's slow down again. We need to examine why Russia is so distrustful of the West. It is, a, is it a power thing? Is it a Soviet thing? Is it a communism thing? Is it a, an authoritarianism thing? What is it? Actually, it's largely a globalism thing. What is globalism? Globalism is the operation or planning of economic and foreign policy on a global basis. Simple enough definition, but in practice it's a bit more complicated than that. In the past hundred years, globalist ideas have spread across the planet at an extremely fast rate, and many globalist organizations have been created from it, such as the United Nations, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the European Union, the World Trade Organization, G20, and others. These organizations provide avenues for simplified worldwide commerce, and in exchange, are able to pass laws regarding their member nations' foreign policy and economic relations. It's a trade-off that many nations, including the United States, have been willing to make. Vladimir Putin has always been a staunch opponent of globalism, particularly when propagated by Western allies. He has long called out the encroachment of Western organizations on Russian borders, which is why he was so against Georgia joining NATO, and why he has kept Belarus, Finland, and Ukraine close for that very reason. He believes the Russian identity is at risk of dissolution if a global society were to rear its ugly head, and does not trust outside figures to make decisions for his nation. As stated in 2008, one of Russia's ultimate go goals is to protect Russian people. And in Putin's eyes, staving off large organizations like NATO and the EU fall into the category of potential enemies. Unfortunately for Putin, his trade war with Ukraine backfired. Ukrainian politicians simply said, well, if we aren't going to export to Russia, we might as well start exporting more to the countries to the West. But in November of 2013, when Ukrainian President Yanukovych traveled to Lithuania to sign the agreement with several EU leaders, Ukrainians were shocked to learn that no agreement had been signed, and with minimal explanation. Shortly after, it was revealed that the Ukrainian government had made a deal with Russia, and suddenly, joining the EU was doubtful. Protests erupted across Ukraine. Citizens were furious. They demanded Yanukovych's resi resignation, citing that he was obviously corrupt and did not have the will of the Ukrainian people as a priority. Protest organizers sent letters as far away as the White House, demanding sanctions on Yanukovych until such a resignation took place. Within days, the protests had turned into riots, and riot police were unequipped to deal with such a situation. But what was the deal with Russia that took place? So, Ukraine had been talking with the European Union for a while, and had told them exactly what they needed in order to make this big shift happen. The deal with the EU would mean Ukraine would need huge, um, a huge amount of infrastructure built to comply with the necessary requirements that being associated with the EU stipulates, and they told EU leaders that they needed 27 billion US dollars in order to make it happen. EU leaders responded by saying, best we can do is 838 million. That's more than $26 billion shy of what Ukraine said it needed. And Russia heard about all of this. So, Russia, not liking what it saw with Ukraine getting more westernized, made its own offer to Ukraine. Russia would supply Ukraine with a $15 billion loan, and it would slash oil prices to Ukraine indefinitely. On top of that, being associated with the EU meant all Ukrainian businesses would have to go through a slew of regulations— but Russia demanded none of that. So Yanukovych took the Russian deal, and a lot of Ukrainians weren't happy. Protests erupted on the 21st of November 2014, and they spread across all of Ukraine. 
primarily in the Kiev region. When the Ukrainian government did not respond to the peaceful protests, they transitioned from being peaceful protests to outright riots by December 1st. And by that day, there were between 400,000 and 800,000 rioters demonstrating against the government. For the next week, protesters and rioters camped out in the city square of Kyiv, despite freezing temperatures, and on the 11th of December, the Ukrainian police launched an assault on the camp with intent to disperse the occupants. The protesters used social media to call other supporters to the city square, and a large brawl ensued between the protesters and police, resulting in hundreds of injuries on both sides. Ultimately, the assault did nothing but invigorate the protesters, resulting in a galvanized and united anti-government force. By January, protesters were becoming more organized and engaging more openly in violence with government forces in the streets of Kyiv and other cities across Ukraine. Frightened by the protests that were now nearing their third month of continuous pressure, the Ukrainian government passed a series of laws restricting the freedom of speech and freedom of assembly until the protests died down. Once again, these measures had the opposite effect, and an enormous protest took place in Kyiv on January 19th, where a number of speeches roused a crowd of 200,000 or more. One of these speeches was by the leader of, an, of the All-Ukrainian Union, a Ukrainian political party who was openly opposed to leadership in Ukraine. This leader, Arseniy Yatsenik, declared, that his, declared in his speech that a new alternative Ukrainian parliament would be created. Effectively, he was declaring that as of this day, as of that day of the speech, the Ukrainian people would have to take a side. It would now become either revolution or civil war. In response, the Ukrainian government began a vicious crackdown on the protests. As night fell over Kyiv, thousands of protesters began marching up one of the central streets of the city toward the parliament building, where they were met by a huge police blockade. The police warned that the protesters that their actions were illegal and threatened force if any of their forces were attacked. One leader of the protesters mounted a car and used a bullhorn to try to calm the crowd down, but the crowd turned on him, attacking him and calling him a traitor. Then, the crowd descended into anarchy. In violence that lasted the entire night, dozens of demonstrators were injured. Many protesters dispersed in fear, but hundreds continued clashing with riot police throughout much of the next day. On January 21st, thousands of protesters again filled the streets of Kyiv, this time erecting barricades to stop traffic and create a perimeter around a central location. Many began showing up with weapons, reportedly supplied by the opposition parties in the Ukrainian government. Late into the night of January 21st, the protesters received a warning from the Ukrainian government. The police had been given the green light to begin more, using more deadly levels of force against the demonstrators. But the protesters just fortified their barricades. As dawn broke on January 22nd, gunfire rang out in the streets of Kyiv, and two demonstrators were shot dead at the hands of Ukrainian police. Then, the city fell into war. For the next 24 hours, Ukrainian police stormed the barricades and the protesters, many armed with homemade clubs, fought them in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Smoke rose over the city as the protesters began burning barricades so police could not cross them, and police used rubber bullets and water cannons in below-freezing temperatures to try to push the protesters back. Despite claims by the Prime Minister that police were not using live ammunition, by the next morning, four protesters were dead with gunshot wounds. Before the violence could escalate, the Ukrainian government called for a meeting with protest leaders and they agreed on a temporary truce. 
but it would only hold for a matter of hours. For the next three weeks, protesters continued to clash with police and hold central points of Kyiv and surrounding areas using barricades to stave off their opponents. And during this time, leadership in the protest became more centralized. One of the leading organizations was called Right Sector, a far-right, neo-fascist, ultra-nationalist Ukrainian organization. And Right Sector became a focal point for the protesters to follow in the lead-up to the events of February 18th. Around February 11th, Right Sector began spreading the word that protesters should prepare for what they called a peace offensive, beginning on February 18th. At 8.30 that morning, around 20,000 protesters marched on the Ukrainian parliament building and began clashing with police who were armed with shotguns and stun grenades. Violence spread to nearby buildings, where protesters launched coordinated attacks on the headquarters of a pro-Russian political party and a building housing soldiers and riot police lobbing stun grenades at the crowd. Then, they continued advancing on the parliament building. Protesters occupied the space in front of the building as Ukrainian President Yanukovych agreed to meet with opposition leaders, only to blame the violence on them and refuse to hear their demands. In response, the opposition refused to meet any of Yanukovych's demands, resulting in a fruitless meeting. The riots continued. On February 20th, reports began emerging that police snipers were positioned on rooftops firing into the crowds below. Violence on the streets escalated, and then the death toll rose. Kiev burned. On the morning of February 21st, suddenly, President Yanukovych was nowhere to be found. In the next few hours, his entire cabinet would resign. The Ukrainian parliament would vote unanimously in a vote of no confidence against Yanukovych, and he was removed as president. It was announced that elections were now scheduled for May 25th of the same year. Political prisoners of the riots were immediately released, several of them soon enough to speak directly to the crowd of over 100,000 in the streets. Many pro-Russian politicians were dismissed and replaced by Ukrainian nationalists. The government was overtaken in large part by members of the All-Ukrainian Union Party, who had played no small role in the riots. It was, for all intents and purposes, a revolution. As the fires in Kyiv were put out and the new government tended to their nation, the rioters returned home and celebrated their victory. Two weeks later, Yanukovych resurfaced in Russia to hold a press conference where he still maintained that he was the rightful leader of Ukraine. But few people listened. Until suddenly, two months later, in the region of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine, a large group of unmarked men stormed the Donetsk Regional State Administration Building and declared the Donetsk People's Republic independent from Ukraine. It was revealed that this group was a pro-Russian separatist group made up of disgruntled ex-police and ex-military who had either been disavowed or left the force following the revolution in February. In the next few weeks, these groups would quickly swell in number and capture the vast majority of government buildings in Donetsk, repurposing them to act as separatist entities. But how did this happen? We saw such huge anti-government protests just a few months earlier, the party that these anti-government protests were advocating for won. Why aren't the Ukrainians happy about it? Well, it's more complex than that. In a poll taken in January of 2014, when the protests were reaching a fever pitch, only 52% of Ukrainians actually supported the protests. That meant up to 48% of Ukrainians did not, and were totally fine with the pro-Russian ideas. 
In a country of 45 million people, 48% is a lot. So when half of the country overthrows the government and instates a totally new government with new ideas that the other half isn't particularly fond of, it makes sense that there would be groups of people who would decide that they no longer want to be part of that nation. And after seeing how violence worked two months earlier, seems like they had a decent enough reason to believe it would work again. This was the beginning of the 21st century Ukrainian civil war, better known as the War in Donbas. While it is a war between Ukrainians and could easily be described as a civil war, the separatists did not want to make decisions for the broader Ukrainian government and wanted instead to operate their own independent republics, which makes the war somewhat different from a civil war and could instead be called the Donetsk War of Independence or something of the sort. But as Ukrainian forces began moving toward the territory of Donetsk to reassert their dominance over the region, this is where Russia starts to play a really big role in the story. As the revolution was ongoing in Ukraine in February, a large number of Russian forces quietly crept into the small peninsula on the south end of Ukraine called Crimea. Now, Crimea is primarily ethnically Russian. Almost everyone who lives there speaks Russian and holds many pro-Russian views, despite the territory being part of Ukraine since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Crimeans had largely voted for pro-Russian politicians and had hosted anti-NATO demonstrations for years. Some politicians in Crimea were even calling for Crimea to rejoin the Russian Federation. This is pretty telling as to why when Russian troops just walked into Crimea, they faced virtually zero pushback. As Russian troops occupied the territory, Ukraine had its hands full with the revolution and stuff, so the pro-Russian parliament there held an illegal referendum where they asked the people if they wanted to join the Russian Federation. Overwhelmingly, the people voted in favor of the annexation. So... In March of 2014, Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula to fanfare from the Crimeans and international condemnation from Western allies, particularly NATO. This profoundly deepened tensions between Russia and Ukraine. The civil war raged in East Ukraine for several months as government forces clashed with separatist forces, each pushing back and forth fighting over city after city, until the situation fundamentally changed in August of 2014. At that point, Ukrainian soldiers fighting in Donbas reported that there was a column of trucks in the region carrying separatist troops that were bearing Russian license plates. Shortly following this, the leader of the Donetsk People's Republic stated that his forces included 1,200 troops who were trained by the Russian military. A few weeks later, another col large column of troops filled with soldiers crossed into Donetsk from Russia on the southeastern tip of Ukraine. Russia denied the existence of both of these columns of trucks. Years later, it would be confirmed that these trucks were manufactured in Russia and did indeed hold Russian regular army inside of them. Russia had put boots on the ground in Ukraine and was actively fighting a war against the Ukrainian military for the independence of the Donetsk People's Republic. Now let's back up a bit. Why the hell were Russian troops fighting Ukrainian troops? What did they have to gain from that? Remember what Medvedev said after the war in Georgia? And remember why Putin justified invading Chechnya? Russia had officially taken up the mantle of defending ethnic Russians wherever they lived in the world. This wasn't a cultural thing, it was a governmental thing. And, the, and doctrinal to the Russian Federation, 
So when ethnic Russians in the Donbas region start declaring that the Ukrainian military is waging war on them and forbidding them from self-governing, the Russian military, Putin specifically, sees it as an ethnic as an opportunity for the first crusade of the Russian Federation for the rescue of ethnic Russians abroad. So, how did Putin go about his invasion of Ukraine? The same way he did the one in Georgia. Attack specific targets, protect the separatists, invade with surgical precision, get in and get out. Only it turned out to be not that simple. The Ukrainian defenders turned out to be more stubborn than the Georgian defenders had been, and a war that Putin likely expected to last a few weeks ended up stretching for years. Russian troops were bogged down in a nation they held no stock in and became demoralized, despite the conflict dying down for several years. The Russian government continuously denied the involvement of Russian forces in Ukraine, and there's no doubt the news got back to the Russian forces who were involved in Ukraine, and international public opinion was quickly turning against Russia as news stories continued to break concerning evidence of Russian troops actively acting against the Ukrainian government in internationally recognized Ukrainian borders. In late 2021, when the war was about to enter its eighth year, Putin realized that he needed to take some further steps here. In the meantime, Putin had amended the Russian constitution to keep himself in power. I forgot to mention that, but that's pretty much all there is to say about it, so he was president again. In 2021, the newer Ukrainian nationalist president, Volodymyr Zelensky, had openly stated that he had become very interested in joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Now, where did we hear that before? Oh yeah, in Georgia in 2008. Georgia was right on the border of Russia. Ukraine was right on the border of Russia. Georgia had separatist movements to join Russia. Ukraine had separate separatist movements to join Russia. Georgia wanted to join NATO. Ukraine wanted to join NATO. Russian troops supported the separatist movements in Georgia. Russian troops supported the separatist movements in Ukraine. The fundamental difference? Things were proving to be a lot more difficult in Ukraine than they had been in Georgia. The surgical precision that had been so effective in the mountain passes of Georgia did not work in the, strawling, in the sprawling landscapes of Ukraine. Ukraine had a stronger, more well-equipped military than Georgia had. Ukrainian nationalism had much more sway over the Ukrainian people than Georgian nationalism did. If Putin wanted to get his point across, he had to up the ante in a very big way. So, in November of 2021, Russian troops began massing on the Ukrainian border, and the world started to panic. It was the largest military buildup anywhere in the world since the end of the Cold War. Russia denied again and again that they had any intention of invading Ukraine, despite the constant swelling of Russian numbers on the border. When questioned directly if Russian intentions included invasion, the Russians deflected the question, stating instead that if Ukraine escalated the war against the separatists in the East, it would be, quote, the beginning of the end of Ukraine. The spokesman claimed that Ukrainians were planning a genocide against Russians living in Ukraine, and they were prepared to act to defend ethnic Russians. Remember, I've said it many times in this podcast, in the United States, we do not understand ethnic conflict, but this is a big deal at most other places in the world. On February 21st, 2022, Vladimir Putin recognized the independence of the Eastern Republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, that were both separatists from Ukraine, and moved Russian troops into the Republic through the loophole that these territories, according to Russia, were no longer Ukrainian territories, so technically Russia hadn't crossed any Ukrainian borders. 
Then, on February 24th, early in the morning, Russian rockets fell on all major population centers in Ukraine. Hours later, tens of thousands of Russian troops crossed into Ukrainian territory from the north, east, and south. The full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the largest conventional military operation since the end of World War II, had begun. But before we wrap it up here, let's do a little bit of analysis. Now, I've scripted the entire episode up to this point, but we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of unscripted stuff. Let's just talk about what's going on in Russia right now. So at the beginning of the war, Putin invaded Russia from three fronts, the south, the east, and the north. In the north, his intention was to go directly to the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, and in the northeast, to the large population center of Kharkiv. In the east... Generally, Russian troops just assisted in separatist forces in invading Ukraine. And in the south, in Crimea, Russian troops advanced northward and have been trying to cut off port cities in the south and southeast of Ukraine. Now, about three weeks ago, Putin's tactics fundamentally changed. He'd been sieging Kiev for a long time, but all of a sudden he pulled all of his troops out of north Ukraine. And we don't know exactly where he's moved them to. But three days ago... The Russian government also announced that they would be pulling their troops back from Kharkiv, which is in the northeast of Ukraine. I speculated about a month ago that the Russian tactic now was to kneecap Ukraine by taking as many port cities as possible, and if possible, make a connection to the tiny territory of Transnistria, which is a de facto independent state in Moldova that's very pro-Russian. And so what could... Putin be trying to accomplish here. Now, here's where the idea that Putin is a thug dictator fundamentally breaks down for me. I believe that this is a calculated attack in terms of he doesn't actually want to take Ukraine for Russia. That would be a nightmare for Russia. That would be like Vietnam for Russia, except probably worse because now the Ukrainian government has armed all of their people to fight Russian people. So, If you look at what happened right at the beginning of the war, it makes sense that, uh, because it lines up with the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Putin was trying to attack surgically. He had very specific targets. If he could take the capital of Kiev early on, then the war would be essentially over before it began. He attacked population centers in the south. He wasn't just blindly sending his troops as far and wide as the eye could see. He was very... He he was attacking very specific population centers and military targets. Now, we're about, we're almost three months into the war, and those tactics did not succeed early on. Kiev did not fall. Kharkiv did not fall. Mariupol was under siege for a month. And these tactics did not work as well as Putin expected, so he's had to change his tactics. But... Remember that this whole time, from like the first opening days of the war, Ukrainian and Russian diplomats have been in peace talks. If Russia intended to overtake all of Ukraine and to just take all of the territory for themselves, Putin never would have been willing to send diplomats to actually have peace talks, which means Putin's endgame was there from the start and it did not include taking all of the Ukrainian territory. Putin's stated goal was to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Now, if you were to demilitarize Ukraine, it means that Ukraine would remain a buffer state between Russia and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization countries. And, you know, Putin also stated very clearly, he didn't even have to state through words, he invaded the country. 
And through that, he stated, you better not join NATO because we don't like NATO and we need a buffer state between Russia and NATO countries. And they've been in peace talks since the opening days of the war. That is not normal for a large invasion like this, which means that Putin has already said, okay, here's our terms. If you accept them, we'll get the heck out of your country. And obviously Ukraine is not willing to meet those demands yet. So that is my analysis of this situation and why I don't believe Putin is just this thug dictator who wants to take Ukraine for himself and, and he's a madman or anything. I believe this is extremely calculated and I believe that from what I've seen so far, Putin has had an end game from the start. It's very clear. It's very concise. And I believe that most Western media has this invasion fundamentally wrong. They do not understand this invasion and why it's happening. They wouldn't be propagating all this BS about all, the, all this anti-Russian BS if they, if they fully understood the situation, because the situation is more complex than just Russian, like Russians are bad and Putin's a bad guy. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't hold up. Now, what's suspicious is that the West has been so avidly against this invasion when they have done literally nothing about the other genocides that have happened across the world. But suddenly they're so involved with, with what's going on here. And that is very suspicious to me. Extremely suspicious to me. Why is the United States pouring $40 billion of military aid into Ukraine if they're not our ally and we have little economic stock in them? Why is that happening? That doesn't make sense to me. $40 billion could be much better spent in our country doing things that benefit Americans. And I understand the plight of the Ukrainian people, and that's tragic and of course, I wish this invasion had never happened. I'm not pro-Russia. I just think that this is more complicated than anyone else is letting on, and we need to start questioning what's going on here. And I'm, that's why I did this podcast, is because people need to understand what's going on here. It's more complicated than we believe. There's generational memory involved. There's in, there, the, the fight between Ukraine and Russia goes back hundreds of years, and we need to acknowledge that that's a real thing. So, I'm off my soapbox now. Let's wrap this bad boy up. Woo! We did it. That is it. That is the longest podcast I have done to date. If you made it all the way to the end, I am impressed. And I love your face and I love your ears. Thank you for listening to all that I have to say about this conflict. I hope you have a better understanding of what's going on here. And I hope you know now that this is wider in scale and scope than any of us thought from the get-go. And if, you're, if you've just been listening to people on Twitter or been consuming whatever the media has fed you about this conflict... You will now know that it goes deeper than that. It's more complicated than that. And, and the world needs to know that that's a reality. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. And follow me on Twitter at TannerTalks1. Number one, TannerTalks1. At TannerTalks1. <laughs> that's it. So... Thank you so much for listening again. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know if you're enjoying what you're hearing and tell your friends, share this episode with people you know. Let's get the word out. Let's tell people. I want the world to be informed. I, that's why I do all this crazy research. I worked on this episode for a month and a half. Thank you for listening. 
I will catch you all soon. I'm going to restart work on my Conflict of Nations series now. I am not going to be doing as constant updates about Ukraine anymore. I'm going to be focusing back on what I was focusing on before the war broke out. And I will eventually finish that series. I promised it to myself that I will do it. All right. This is Tanner Talks. I am signing off. Catch y'all later.